Chapter 10 of Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Scotland. Quote, I have a great work before me and much encouragement. Multitudes of gownsmen attend, prejudices wear away, the godly go on well. What can I wish for more to stimulate me? Oh, that I had a mind to the work, such, I mean, as I ought to have. Then we might hope that the building would be carried up quicker. However, thanks be to God, though we are faint, we are yet pursuing. I have had two young Scotch ministers to dine with me today. They brought a letter to me from Edinburgh, and I have had unspeakable cause for thankfulness that they did. End quote. Simeon writes thus to a friend in 1795. My desultory narrative has often already carried me far beyond that date. I recur to it here chiefly for the sake of the last sentence of the extract. They bring us to the opening of one of the most interesting and important episodes of Simeon's life, his visits to Scotland and the influence which he exerted there. England owes much to Scotland in the matter of Christian benefit, the country of Rutherford and of Leighton. The collocation of those names is strange from the point of view of church organization, deeply natural from that of spiritual life has taught us of the South some of the inmost lessons of the School of Grace. And what English Christian, who has been moved and instructed by the words and works of Chalmers, the Bonars, Candlish, McChain, or Hewitson, does not thank Scotland for such messengers to the Church? England, on her part, has been the minister of spiritual gifts to Scotland, and in his day Simeon was one of the chief agents of that ministry. We do not know the names of the two young Scotch ministers of 1795, nor who wrote their letter of introduction, but their visit probably led to Simeon's acquaintance in 1796 with an able and earnest clergyman in Edinburgh, William Buchanan, who visited Cambridge and soon persuaded Simeon to take his annual holiday in Scotland. That year the friends went together to Edinburgh, and Simeon travelled through the Highlands. Again, in 1798, he visited the far north with Buchanan, going to Inverness and Tain. Scotland was not then the familiar resort of holiday-taking Englishmen, as it has so long been now. The visitor made his way through many a district, rarely traversed from outside, and his lodging was the village inn, when he was not the guest at mansion or manse. Simeon's favourite conveyance was his horse, which carried him far over the highland roads and paths. His holidays were not by any means cessations in his work for God. Wherever he went, he appeared as the Christian and as the clergyman, ready for his master's business as occasion offered. And the occasions were many, both for private intercourse and household devotion, and for public preaching, as the narrative will show. This is not the place for a review of Scottish religious history. All that is necessary as a preface to Simeon's work in the north is to remind the reader that his first visits there fell about halfway between two important spiritual epochs in the Presbyterian Church. In the earlier half of last century, the too rigid order of church life had been disturbed by a first and a second movement towards a fuller and heartier spiritual faith and witness, each movement issuing in a secession from the main body. The names of Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine and Thomas Gillespie mark that period. And seven years after Simeon's death occurred the great ecclesiastical crisis of the disruption when the Free Church of Scotland was organised. 
Alike, the earlier and later upheaval and separation may be viewed, of course, from very different points, but it can hardly be denied of either that the circumstances, however they were dealt with on any side, were full to overflowing of true spiritual factors. A prevalent indifference or oblivion about the Christianity of Scripture was invaded by a revival of scriptural truth and life, and some sort of disturbance was inevitable by no fault of the invading principle in itself. I for one would fain believe that in all such times of crisis in the Christian Church there might well have been found, speaking humanly, some better way than that of an outward dislocation if both parties could have acted with a single and watchful aim towards truth and peace. But was there ever yet seen quite such action on both sides in great practical controversies in the Church? However, Simeon's first visits to Scotland fell between the age of the earlier secessions and that stirring time which immediately preceded the rise of the Free Church. He found accordingly around him, almost wherever he went, individual instances of warm Christian life, much earnest pastoral labour and some vigorous irregular efforts, and on the other hand the cooler and too negative influence of a widely prevalent moderatism. It is remarkable that his admission to Presbyterian pulpits, of which I shall soon come to speak, was opposed not, so far as any hint appears, by high churchmen in England, but by the moderates in the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. The activity of the itinerants, as some lay evangelists were called, who had left the Scottish Church for Congregationalism, and who had not always acted and spoken wisely, had alarmed and displeased the moderate leaders and prepared them for an unfavourable view of Simeon's energetic preaching. His appearance as a minister in parish churches had given a precedent for some similar ministrations by the itinerants. And in 1799, the assembly enacted, under strong protest from the evangelicals, their opponents called them the high flyers, that, quote, no preacher who is not a licentiate of, and no minister who has not been ordained by some presbytery of, the Church of Scotland, shall ever officiate in any of its pulpits, end quote. In his later visits to the north, Simeon was thus debarred from parochial preaching. I cannot speak of Simeon in Scotland without a passing reference to Thomas Chalmers, whose wonderful personal influence was a main animating power in Scottish Christianity during the first forty years of this century. When Simeon first crossed the border, Chalmers was only a boy of fifteen, and fifteen years later he was, as a parish minister, the best possible representative of the moderates. Earnest and eloquent upon moral duty, but reticent about the divine peculiarities of Christianity. Not till 1811, in his manse at Kilmeny in Fife, did he unlearn that point of view when, after reading Wilberforce's practical view of Christianity, that epoch-making book, as it was in many a life, he saw his sin and his Redeemer in a new and profound experience. The result of the change in Chalmers came out in a long aftercourse in which his surpassing gifts as a thinker, teacher, preacher, philanthropist, and leader of men all found their highest employment. His conversion, by its results, stirred Scottish Christendom to its depths, and his personal Christian history is deeply interwoven with that of his church and his nation. But I must not speak at any length of Chalmers. He made Simeon's acquaintance in the sequel, but I do not find that Simeon's visits to Scotland had any direct bearing upon Chalmers' spiritual experience, and so upon his work. 
All that I will add here, under his great name, is the quotation of a characteristic letter written many years after the time now in view. He introduces a young friend to Simeon at Cambridge. I copy from the manuscript before me. Glasgow, October 12, 1818. My dear sir, the person who presents you with this letter is Mr. Alexander Graham, son of a respectable proprietor of land in this neighbourhood. Piety is so rare an article in the higher society of Scotland that I am glad to make such a use of the request that the young gentleman has made for letters of introduction as to bring him into contact with what is most Christian and good in your town. I have also given him a letter to Mr. Elliot of Trinity College. Should he miss him, you may perhaps be able to bring him into acquaintanceship with some young persons of a kindred spirit to Mr. Elliot. It is my earnest prayer that you may long be spared in the high stations of usefulness that you occupy, that salt through your means may long continue to be thrown into such a copious and emanating fountain as your university, and that days of glory and of holiness may speedily come upon the Church of England. Excuse the shortness and confusedness of this letter, I write in great heaviness, having just heard of Dr. Balfour being attacked in the street by a fit of apoplexy. Believe me, my dear sir, yours most truly, Thomas Chalmers. But this is a long anticipation of time. I go back to Simeon's early northern tours, and to some of his own recollections of them, given in his often quoted private memoir. He speaks thus of his ministrations in parish churches. Quote, I officiated precisely as they do in the Kirk of Scotland, and I did so upon this principle— Presbyterianism is as much the established religion in North Britain as Episcopacy is in the South, there being no difference between them except in church government. As an Episcopalian, therefore, I preached in Episcopal chapels, and as a member of the established church, I preached in the Presbyterian churches, and I felt myself the more warranted to do this, because if the king, who is the head of the establishment in both countries, were in Scotland, he would of necessity attend a Presbyterian church there, as he does an Episcopalian church here. And I look upon it as an incontrovertible position that where the king must attend, a clergyman may preach. I was informed, indeed, that Archbishop Usher had preached in the Kirk of Scotland, and I know that some very high churchmen had done so, but, without laying any stress on precedence, I repeat that where the king and his court must attend, a clergyman may preach. End quote. The allusion to Usher has to do, no doubt, with the story of his visit to Rutherford at Unworth, among the hills and woods of Galloway, when, on the Saturday night, Mrs. Rutherford catechised the unknown stranger in the Decalogue, and the minister himself, discovering the Archbishop of Armagh, constrained him on the Sunday to mount the pulpit, where Usher, who had displeased his questioner overnight by saying that there were eleven commandments, preached on the new commandment of Christ, the quaint and beautiful anecdote is, I believe, authentic. As to Usher's presence at some time in Galloway, it was altogether likely, for the transit from Northern Ireland to Great Britain was then commonly made across those narrow seas. Simeon's words about the no difference between the Northern and Southern churches are almost an echo, conscious or not, of a memorable passage in a treatise by that learned champion of episcopacy, Lord's ally against Milton, Bishop Hall, Quote, Blessed be God, there is no difference in any essential matter between the Church of England and her sisters of the Reformation. We accord in every point of Christian doctrine without the least variation. 
The only difference is in the form of outward administration, wherein also we are so far agreed as that we all profess this form not to be essential to the being of a church, though much importing the well or better being of it, according to our several apprehensions thereof. End quote. Some interesting details of this visit follow in Simeon's diary. Sunday, 19th June, 1796. Went with Messrs. Innes and Campbell to St. Ninian's near Stirling. Mr. Sheriff began the service and preached an useful sermon from Hebrews 10 verse 10. After preaching about an hour, besides prayer and singing, he left the pulpit and went to the head of the tables. There he gave an exhortation respecting the sacrament, which to me was more excellent than his sermon. I communicated at the second table, where Mr. Campbell exhorted. His exhortation was exceedingly precious to my soul. I was quite dissolved in tears. I made a free, full, and unreserved surrender of myself to God. Oh, that I may ever bear in mind his kindness to me and my obligations to him. After communicating, I left them, and saw as I came into the churchyard one preaching there in a tent. This preacher was Mr. C. of Bathcanor. I did not stop to hear him, lest I should lose the blessed frame in which my soul then was. I walked home alone by choice and met numbers coming to the sacrament, which, as I understood, lasted till about eight in the evening. They had about a thousand communicants, a fresh exhortation to every table, and a sermon to conclude. This passing picture of one preaching in a tent is curious and interesting, an anticipation of some recent developments of evangelistic effort. Who the zealous Mr. C. was, I do not know. His description seems to say that he was a landowner. Was he one of the itinerants? But we must come without delay to the much most interesting and important incident of that northern tour, the English clergyman's visit to Moulin and its results. Moulin is the parish in which lies the now favourite and populous health resort of Pitlochry, just at the southern gate of the Pass of Kilicranky, in the noble highlands of Perthshire. There the Tummel and the Garry, rushing each from its deep and leafy ravine, unite their waters, and the visitors' thoughts are divided between the glories of nature and the traditions of that famous fight, 1689, when, in the broad field at the head of the pass, the Highland host suddenly and totally overthrew the regiments of General Mackay, just emerging with difficulty from the dark gorge, and John Graham of Cleaverhouse, Lord Dundee, fell in the moment of his triumph. But another and far different memory belongs also to the scenery for those who love the annals of Christian life. Into this romantic region Simeon came riding by way of Dunkeld in his first June in Scotland, and the parish minister of Moulin was Alexander Stewart, a man of beautiful character and some considerable gifts and attainments. In his early manhood he had attracted the attention and respect of Dougald Stewart, by some unpublished metaphysical papers, and he had also come to be known as one of the best Gaelic scholars of his time. His Gaelic grammar had a high reputation. He was a native of that fine region and warmly in love with its scenery and associations, and he was the centre of a happy home. But his soul was beclouded and uneasy. He preached a pure and high morality and held in a certain sense the doctrines of Christian orthodoxy, but he saw no satisfying results of his labour among his people, and he was himself restlessly conscious that secrets of spiritual joy and power lay near him undiscovered. Then it was that he met the English traveller. Simeon's diary makes a brief mention of the occasion. Friday 24th, set out for Dunkeld, saw the Duke of Athol's grounds, 
Here I was fatigued with my walk. We declined prosecuting our journey, notwithstanding the horses were at the door. There, through mercy, I slept sweetly and pursued my journey on Saturday 25th to Moulin, twelve miles in my way to Blair Athol. At Moulin I visited Reverend Mr. Stewart, a most agreeable and pious man. The sacrament was to be administered next day, and according to custom there were two complete services, but the former alone was in English. I heard the discourse from Mr. E., Minister of Blair. He is an old man and wants life and animation. Neither myself nor Mr. H., footnote James Haldane, afterwards resident at Geneva, where he was the means of spiritual awakening, to J. H. Mel d'Aubignon, Caesar Milan, A. Gaussen, and many other students of the university, and footnote, was much edified. After the service we went to Blair, we returned through Kilcranky Pass to Moulin. Sunday 26th, Sacrament Sunday at Moulin. The congregation was numerous and the communicants almost a thousand. I preached a short sermon, and while they were partaking I spoke a few words of encouragement and bid them depart in peace. I expressed to them, in the former exhortation, my fears respecting the formality which obtains among all the people, and urged them to devote themselves truly to Jesus Christ. After that I partook with the third table. On the whole, this Sabbath was not like the last. Then I was very much affected, now I was barren and dull. God, however, is the same, and his word is unchangeable, and in that is all my hope. Woe be to me if I were to be saved by my frames. Nevertheless, I would never willingly be in a bad one. At six in the evening I preached again to those who understood English, but they were few, and they seemed not to understand me. In the evening Mr. Stewart came up into my room, and we had much and useful conversation about the ministry. He complained of unprofitableness, and was much affected during the conversation. We prayed together, and parted very affectionately with the osculum parcis. He promised to write to me. That memorable day and night, for it was such for Stuart, and through him for many other lives, is recorded more fully in Simeon's private memoir. When I was in the Highlands, it was my intention to go as far as the pass of Kilcranky, and afterwards to return to Dunkeld on a Friday afternoon, but at Dunkeld I found myself poorly, and when my horses were brought to the door I ordered them back, and proceeded to Kilcranky the next day. At Moulin, a village four miles from Kay, I called to see a Mr. Stewart, to whom I had a letter of introduction, and as it was the day of preparation for the Lord's Supper, which in Scotland is observed with peculiar solemnity and long public services, I agreed to visit the pass of Killacranky, and return for his services, and spend the Sabbath with him. Mr. Stewart was a man in high repute, both for amiableness of manners and for learning, but he was very defective in his views of the gospel, and in his experience of its power. When we were all retiring to go to bed, I had him with me alone in my chamber, and spoke such things as occurred to my mind, with a view to his spiritual good, and it pleased God so to apply them to his heart, that they were made effectual for the opening of his eyes, and bringing him into the marvellous light of the gospel of Christ. From that moment he changed the strain of his preaching, determining to know nothing among his people but Jesus Christ and him crucified and God has now, for these fifteen years, made his instructions most eminently useful for the conversion and salvation of many souls. One name ever to be famous in the annals of Christian missions is nearly, though indirectly, connected with that day. The late Mr. Duff of Calcutta, the prince of missionary educationists, was the son of parishioners of Stuart's. The parents owed their own selves to the now transfigured matter and tone of their minister's teaching, 
They brought up their child in the full faith of the gospel and with a special dedication of his life to the service of Christ. A bronze statue of the great missionary now stands close to one of the churches in Bidlockry, and to those who know the story of Simeon and Stuart it is a monument also to them. As we might suppose, the two men thus brought together in Christ found themselves at once the dearest of intimates. Simeon's strong and eager heart was opened to Stuart without reserve, and Stuart responded with all the tender warmth which so often lies beneath the more reticent surface of the northern character. Let me quote a few sentences from one of his letters to his now beloved friend. Moulin, November 25th, 1796. Ever since the few happy hours in which I was blessed with your company, I have daily thought, with pleasure and gratitude, of the Lord's loving kindness to me in sending two of his chosen servants, so unexpectedly and so seasonably, to speak to me the words of life. My kind friend, Mr. Haldane, in a letter I received two days ago, tells me you have not forgotten me, and that you desire to hear from me. I wish I knew how to express my filial regard and attachment to one whom I have every reason to consider as my spiritual father. If Onesimus might call Paul his father, with the like reason, may I call Mr. Simeon mine. For indeed I found from your conversation, your prayers, preaching, and particularly from our short interview in your bedroom, more of religious impression and more of spiritual life and ardour infused into my soul than ever I was conscious of before. O oh, my dear sir, praise the Lord on my behalf, who hath given me to perceive something of his glory and his grace as displayed in Jesus Christ, though I have a great deal yet to see and to learn. In emulation of your manner of preaching I have for four months past preached English from short skeletons without reading or committing to memory, a thing I had never attempted before. My discourse is less correct and must offend a critic, but it is more energetic and may profit a soul that is hungry for the bread of life. Grace and peace be with you. Yours most sincerely, Alexander Stewart. P.S. A poor woman in this village who heard you preach here insists on my letting you know how much she enjoyed your discourse and how much she was revived by it. She lives quite alone in a small hovel, on a scanty provision, yet she enjoys a great measure of the Lord's countenance, and lives much in communion with him. Do, my dear sir, remember me in your prayers. In mine, such as they are, I seldom omit making mention of you. Simeon replies at once to his, quote, very, very dear friend, end quote, There is an unaccountable union of heart with, or, if I may so express myself, an outgoing of the soul toward some persons which we feel instantaneously and we know not why. Such I felt almost the first instant I saw my dear friend at Moulin. I hope it is an earnest of that everlasting union which our souls shall enjoy in the regions of light and love. I am exceedingly comforted, my dear brother, with the account which you give of your soul. Oh, how desirable is it for all, but especially for ministers, to have their souls deeply and devoutly impressed. I pray, God, that what you now experience may only be as the drop before the shower. Surely this is happiness, to taste the love of God, to delight in his service, and to see that we are in a measure instrumental to the imparting of this happiness to others. This, I say, is a felicity which nothing but heaven can exceed." The account you give of the dear poor woman rejoices my heart. Pray give my fervent love to her. Stuart's life was henceforth full of fruitful labours. A few years later than Simeon's visit, there came over Moulin and its neighbourhood one of those times of religious awakening which seem like afterwaves of the first Pentecost. 
it was directly due under God to the minister's altered preaching and untiring pastoral diligence, and his own character seemed to mould the movement. There was abundant repentance in the many converts and a chastened happiness and a remarkable amendment of morals in the whole neighbourhood, but an almost total absence of even the look of unwholesome excitement. In 1805, Stuart was made minister of the town of Dingwall in Rosshire, and there laboured in a very different field, equally displaying firmness in reproving and opposing vice, and affectionate gentleness in temper and manner. In 1820 he was unexpectedly presented by the Crown to the first charge of Canongate Parish in Edinburgh, but his work there was very short. An old malady returned upon him, and he died in 1821, beloved and long lamented. Simeon left Moulin soon after that Sunday. Thursday 30th to Ben Lamond. From the foot we arrived at the top in three hours. Mr. H. and myself then went to prayer and dedicated ourselves afresh to God. When we surveyed the scenery, which to the northwest was exceedingly grand, for immediately across the lake were a vast multitude of hills, whose lofty summits clad in russet formed a view totally different from anything I had ever seen. We had a bird's-eye view of them, and their appearance was inexpressibly majestic. That view of the great loch, with its many islands, gave him a vivid simile used long afterwards. Seen from the water, the islands were large and broken masses. Seen from the mountain, they lay flat as pancakes in the distance. So may some of the differences, which now separate Christians, sink into an almost nothing when seen from the point of view of the eternal state. The tour of 1796 was followed by others in 1798, 1815, and 1819. This last occasion was the visit noticed above when Simeon went with his friend Marsh as an advocate of the cause of the Jewish missions. Simeon's intercourse with Scottish Christians did much to bring about a better mutual understanding between them and their English brethren. It was a surprise to many in the north to see a southern clergyman mount the pulpit with only his little Bible in his hand, and preach with the utmost freedom and energy, yet with exactness of diction and a clear order of thought. And Simeon, on his part, was evidently impressed by the presence around him in Scotland of the tokens of deep spiritual life and of diligent pastoral labour. His loyalty to the English church and its worship was by no means shaken meantime. The prayer book, always dear to him, grew dearer as he returned again to its use. Extempore public prayer he could and did approve in theory and often in experience, but he found that average conditions were much better met by an ordered form, reverently and spiritually used. Quote, I cannot help recording here to the honour of the Church of England that on all the three times that I have visited Scotland and have attended almost entirely the Presbyterian churches, I have, on my return to the use of our liturgy, felt it an inestimable privilege that we possess a form of sound words so adapted in every respect to the wants and desires of all who would worship God in spirit and in truth. If all men could pray at all times as some men can sometimes, then indeed we might prefer extempore to precomposed prayers. End, quote. End of chapter 10.